Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. It's coming home, it's coming home. Football's coming home. What a summer of football. Welcome to episode 10, the summer of football. We are going to dive right in. We're going to spend a ton of time talking about all the awesome things that we watched on the television and the not-so-awesome things that we watched on the television. But both of you, right? England making it all the way to the final and just barely missing out. Philippe losing in the final of the Copa America. This has got to feel like a tough time. It feels good for me to be able to chat to you guys on this front. How was the summer for you guys? Good? Well, can I, before we go any further, can I make a special request? Yeah. You never, ever start one of these podcasts by singing <laughs> ever again. Please. It's Especially when you got Rome. the wrong lyrics. Because you went Rome. No. It went, Rome. yeah, I know, I know. But, you know, that, that song is just so catchy. And, you know, sometimes Andy, being older, he comes into every episode. He's kind of dragging as he comes in. And I just thought he'd, you know, make his hair stand on end and just get a little excitement, the blood rush a little bit higher as he remembers how awesome the English run was during the Euros. What you perceive as me dragging is actually my best ever day at this age. <laughs> you know, I'm super excited to do these things. You should see me when I'm not ready to do this. <laughs> you know, death warmed over is what. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Jammies back at home, walking around with a hot cup of tea. I can. I can picture it. I can picture it. With my walker. You know, <laughs> I need to be fed. You know, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, for the most of our audience, I imagine is probably American guys. We've got bragging rights over both Philippe and Andy because all three of us have competed. Our countries have competed in an event this summer. Neither of them have won. They both lost. But our team, the United States of America, has one trophy from the Concacaf Nations League, and we're on our way to winning a second trophy in the same summer with the prestigious Gold Cup. Well, that's like comparing the EPL to the lowest level of amateur soccer. You know, comparing, you know, Brazil and England to the USA. I mean, you know, the Euros, Copa America versus... A trophy's a trophy. I think right. it's valid that the US has more international trophies than England, though. <laughs> You're the type of guy that puts your youth team into the lowest level tournament just to win, aren't you? I can see that. Oh, you should see my wind chime at home. All of my medals that I've gathered. Yep. (laughs) 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 Whatever it takes to feel good. Now, on a serious note, though, guys, you've enjoyed the football this summer? Yeah. I mean, no. (laughs) 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 Well, I got to agree that we're obviously frustrating parts. Obviously, wanting Brazil to beat Argentina again because I... Since I was born and I'm 29 years old, I had never seen Brazil lose to Argentina in the final. And, you know, they had to put like four or five Copa Americas in the last seven years so they could finally win one. But, you know, uh, obviously wasn't the best outcome that, that I wanted. But it was good to have soccer to watch on a daily basis, though. I'm, I'm, you know, about to start playing my violin for you, you know, you know with, you know, you're, uh, you know, not happy about, you know, the Copa America result. Can you imagine what it's like to be English? You know, a decade after decade after decade of absolute garbage, you know, football, soccer. 
you know, and, you know, not taking any risks, you know, trying to play, you know, possession soccer and trying to win a major trophy and decade after decade of banging your head against a brick wall, not improving, not getting any better, you know, and doing it all over again and all over again. It, it is like water torture, you know, to me, to watch the English national team. It's worse than water torture, you know, you know, because you live after water to torture, you know, so you have to go again and again and again. I'd rather they just ended it for me, <laughs> you know, I and mean, kill me, <laughs> put me out of my misery now, you know, in, instead of making me watch, you know, the World Cup in a couple of years' time, uh, you know, in, in Qatar, you know, it's next year, isn't it? It is, yes, yeah, just around year. the corner. Yeah, yeah, because of COVID, you know, you know I'm going to go through this again. I know I'm going to go through it again, and I am going to go in hoping something's changed. And my hopes are going to be dashed. You know, it, it's like, you know, honestly, I can't think of a better analogy. Like, you know, you've fallen in love with this woman. And she's your everything. And you want to stay married to her for life. And you get down on a bended knee. And you've just spent $20,000 on an engagement ring. And she says no. She won a $40,000 engagement ring. Where was, the, uh, where was the line? Well, you know, you thought it was going to be something special this time around. Let's say, you know, you tried this before and, you, you know, this had happened before. But this was the one. This was, you know, the, your, your forever love. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, England is my forever love. You know, I, I was born there. I was brought up there. You know, that's where I learned to, to, to play the ugly game, <laughs> not the beautiful, beautiful game. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know and, and that's what convinced me I needed to study the beautiful game to figure out how to coach the beautiful game because I got frustrated with playing the ugly game. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, but we go in, all of us English go into the next tournament thinking it's going to be different. And, you know, it was. We got to the final. But it was so easy on that side of the bracket. I mean, you know, we didn't play anybody of any note, you know, to get to the final. You're, you're right. Like, it was the easiest side of the bracket, hands down, for sure. Um, but there was some optimism, not just, not just among English fans in general. Like, yeah, I could by feel... By sorry, Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> I could feel some optimism from, from you throughout the tournament, not by the way that they were playing, but if Southgate chose to actually put the most creative team out on the pitch, that they had a they had a quality side, they they could make a run that is both uh, effective and and enjoyable to watch. But it, it never came to fruition. Well, you know, and this is interesting because Gareth Southgate is is like that youth coach that just puts the fastest athletes on the field. You know, so he has Raheem Sterling there who can't dribble to save you know anybody's life, let alone his own. You know, and he fumbles and bumbles and, you know, but he's rocket fast. You know, his speed across 10 yards is just ungodly. You know, so he makes the team over Jack Grealish, you know, who can, you know, peel a grape, you know, whilst, you know, he, he's, he's, you know, skiing, you know, on one ski, you know, and, you know, and just, you know, thinking about a thousand different things. He's got this amazing talent as a, as a soccer player. And, you know, he can do 10 times the things that Southgate can do with the ball. You know, but he's not considered because he's a creative risk. You know, in Southgate, you know, you know, if you put the ball 10 yards in front of, of sorry, uh, um, it's just uh, Sterling. You know, if you put the ball 10 yards in front of Sterling, you know, he's going to get there before the defender does because he's that quick across 10 yards. You know, so you've got this incredible skill, this incredible creativity versus, you know, Sterling, who honestly, with the ball at his feet, is a donkey. You know, and, you know, and you choose the guy that, you know, that, that is just quick, you know, who can score from close in, 
instead of the guy that can beat people, create space, sucks defenders to him, can score from 25 yards on a fairly regular basis, you know, has got artistry, has got guile, you know, you know is, is beautiful to watch, you know, and, you know, he's kind of like a Brazilian in an English shirt, you know, thinking of the, the great Brazilian sides of the, you know, 1970 or, or 2002, you know, he's like that Brazilian player, you know, in an English shirt. And then you've got Jaden Sancho, you know, who's, you know, really good at dribbling, beats players like they don't exist, you know, scores goals, rocket fast. He's faster than Grealish, you know, very dangerous from that perspective. You know, and then you've got Phil Foden, left-footed, which means the defenders are one-eighth as used to defending against him as they are the right-footed players, you know, and, you know, he's an incredible dribbler. He scores goals. Very got, deceptive on the ball. Yeah, and he's got a beautiful passing ability, you know, and, you know, and, and here's the other thing. Those two, the last two, have both won World Cups already. They won the Under-17 World Cup for England, which is the only World Cup that England's won since 1966. Wait, didn't they win the U-17 and the U-20 in like back-to-back years or, or within a couple of years of each other? I think, I think, I think I'm not mistaken on that. Maybe I'm not. Well, your, I probably missed the U-20 because it was overload, and I didn't believe that England could win another World Cup. <laughs> that you got to save, your, save yourselves <laughs> for the Euros 2020 and, and for Qatar 2022, of course. Yeah, yeah, that Too much sense. of a good thing. We English will deny it. Yeah. Oh, no, it can't happen to us. <laughs> you know, that's impossible. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, what, a, what, a, what an event. So, But in a conversation that we had just the other day, Andy, you, had, you were drawing a comparison between – the, the Euro English team that made this run uh, to perhaps your favorite team of all time, the 1970 Brazilian team. I drew a comparison? Yeah, you, were, you compared and contrasted. Maybe no, more contrast. contrast. Don't get contrast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe more contrast there, there than comparison. No comparison. Well, there was a comparison from a perspective. There were both, both sides had 11 players on the team. <laughs> that's, where, that's where any similarity ends right there. <laughs> Well, that Brazilian team, though, like what, what did you appreciate about that team specifically? Well, you know, they, they had a coach, number one, uh, you know, Zagallo, who was, you know, a, a lover of creative players. You know, and so, you know, what, what they did and, you know. Is that like, not a comparison to Gareth Southgate? Southgate? <laughs> <laughs> no? Okay. He got role players. Yeah, yeah. I, know, so every, I was busy every, watching the Nations League CONCACAF. So, so if, if, let's go to, if you're an opposing coach and you're playing against Gareth Southgate, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you know exactly what Sterling's going to do. You know exactly what Harry Kane's going to do. You know, Mason Mount, you know what all the English front six are going to do. They're easy to prepare for. They're predictable. Yeah. You know, but if you're preparing for Phil Foden, Sancho, and Grealish, you have no idea what's coming next. There's an element of surprise. And uh, in, in, every, in every moment, they're on the ball. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, you know, the, the preparation is... I don't know, you know, yeah. just take it as it comes and try and stop it. Well, the 1970 Brazilian team, every single one of the front six was a number 10. You know, and you look at that front six. It was incredible. You know, there's the master, Pelé, you know, and, you know, and, and, but he drifted into the center, drifted right, drifted left. Then there's Jairzinho who scored in every single round of the 1970 World Cup. You know, and he's fast, he's strong, but he's also skillful. He's also fantastic in the air, but on the floor, he's creative, he's improvisational, you know, and that's why he scored in every round of the World Cup. He could score in so many different ways, as could Pelé. And then you've got Rivellino, 
who has a move named after him, but he was actually better than Ronaldinho, invented what we know as the Ronaldinho, the flip-flap. You know, Rivellino was the guy that popularized that move, you know, and was absolutely incredible on the ball and left-footed. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, just incredible. And then the, the midfield is Tostau, another left-footer. You know, who, Gerson was left-footed, I believe. Gerson as well was left-footed. So you've got three of the front six left-footed players. So the defense has one-eighth of the experience playing against those players. But they're all number tens. And then you've got Clodo Aldo, who was probably the weakest technically of the front six and beat four players in his own half before he passed the ball to Jairzinho, you know, who you know, had drifted all the way to the left wing, who we all thought of more as a right winger, you know, and, and it was just incredible to see the skills of this front six. So at the end of the day, what do you do if you're the opposing manager? You know, you're preparing your team to play against a front six like that. Well, actually, I've heard what you, you tell t- them. I've heard you tell the story. It was when your dad told you, taught you how to defend, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And if they go right, right, then you push them to their left. If they go left and they go right and left in two succinct possessions, then you get down on one knee and then two knees, hands together, look to God and start praying. Isn't that how they defended the 70 yeah. World Cup team? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah, all yeah, you can yeah, do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When, when players are that, that good, you know, you cannot, because they're not predictable, you cannot set your team up to defend against the pass. You know, if I'm a coach defending against England, I set my defense up to defend the pass because it, it doesn't frighten me when Harry Kane gets the ball. He's not fast enough to get by my, my one defender. This is a good setup to segue for a moment to discuss the Copa and discuss Brazil specifically. Brazil being what everybody thought and probably was the best team in the Copa, but, but getting nicked and getting beaten at the end by Argentina. And, and, and the difference between Brazil now and Brazil in 1970, Philippe, what, what would you say is the difference between those two sides? Well, very clearly, Andy just named six players, and you can throw Carlos Alberto into that mix as well on that team, and probably other players on that team that were very good. And then you got 2002 when you have, you know, Cafu, Roberto Carlos, Rivaldo, Ronaldo, and Ronaldinho, you know, or, and even the in the 80s, you know, you had Zico, Socrates, Falcão, and all these players, uh, Junior, Leandro on the outsides, you know, fanta- all fantastic players. And then now uh, hold we that have thought for a second. Hold that thought, because something just occurred to me. <laughs> Doesn't happen often. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of intelligence showed up. Um, not only do you have these fantastic players on each of these teams, but every one of the other players, because they're Brazilian, has a level of creativity that completely blows away John Stones. Harry Maguire. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, and where does the you comparison know, start? They both wore shoes during the games? Um, I think you're, you're giving them too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, and then nowadays you have Neymar. Period. In terms of super creative, dynamic, go-for-it players. The most frustrating thing for me, it's seeing outside backs that are better at defending than attacking. All our outside backs. Even in the most recently years, Marcelo, Dani Alves, they were always criticized by not being as good as they were going forward, going back to defend. 
but that's how all the Brazilians outside backs were. And nowadays we have two guys that are super fit, super strong, and defend really well, I guess. And are you trying to tell me that Marcelo is better going forward than Luke Shaw? <laughs> Luke Shaw Luke scored. Oh, he did. And it was yeah. a good finish, to give him credit. It was a good finish. So he's every bit as good as Marcelo because he scored a goal. <laughs> One time in his career going forward, he scored a goal. You know, Marcelo might have scored 100 going forward, but, you know, I, I picked Luke Shaw. He's English. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, like, you, you've, you've got a point, right? Like, if when I go back and watch uh, not just the Brazil-Argentina game, but the games in general in the Copa when Brazil was playing – the the other the opposing team had a plan and it was we're going to foul Neymar and we're going to foul Neymar and we're going to rotate who fouls Neymar to ensure that nobody gets a red card and we're just going to foul Neymar because they could key entirely on Neymar right yeah but in, but the difference in the in the final between Argentina and Brazil despite Brazil probably being a better team is Argentina had what what did they have more than Brazil besides the number of goals one difference maker period they had two difference makers well one more difference one maker. more difference so maker. Messi I gotta go and back. Di Maria I gotta go back you know you, you know it, they didn't just foul Neymar like you said four times they fouled him uh, 400 times yeah four times per so, player on the field so you know what you, what you we've got to say you know you got to foul Neymar foul Neymar foul ne foul, foul, <laughs> you got to keep fouling Neymar <laughs> yeah. you know it was just ridiculous yeah the yeah. amount of times they fouled Neymar yeah you know, Which was frustrating because he always adds an extra roll or two on the end of every foul so it just heats up the clock he is a diver yeah, 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 100%. Yeah, well. yeah. But you w I would be too if, if everybody was coming out. When you out. get kicked that yeah, much, hatch it, though. Hatch it and that, and yeah. the one thing that I respect about him, the amount of times he gets kicked, he still goes at people. Like, he does not shy off. You know, sometimes you had players that, and you as a donkey left back that just defended hey, and kicked for your whole life, for, from what I've heard. Uh, hmm. I was like you Luke Score, Luke Shore. I scored once in my whole career. <laughs> On the you wrong know. goal, though, wasn't but, it? Yeah. <laughs> hey, did you have to go there? Yes, it was. But how many times did you play against players that you know you would hit them once, twice to intimidate them, and the next time they receive the ball and they see you coming, they play backwards. A lot of them, right? No, after the first hit, they did that. <laughs> exactly. So Neymar is a guy that you know he has that willingness to, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going, but. As you guys said, it was literally only him. The other players, they are boring to watch. Yeah, but, that, but that's oh, what hold made... Hold on a second, hold on a second. Boring to watch? I loved watching Brazil in the Copa. You know, Comparatively. It, you know, if, if you want to talk boring to watch, let's talk about England. <laughs> I mean, you know, in Brazil versus England. Brazil in the Copa, England in the Euros... Boring to watch? No, Brazil, not so much. You know, England absolutely like watching grass grow. You know, like watching tea brew. But it, it was awful. It, it was more than just England being boring to watch. I found the Copa America, aside from the group stage, because the Copa setup was, was poor. It, you know, 10 teams in the tournament, eight go through to the second round. Aside from the group stage, once we got to the knockout phase of the Copa America, every single game was good to watch. Latin, American soccer, the, the style of play, the, the heavyweight fight where nobody's playing defense they're just throwing you know haymakers left and right attack 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 Muhammad Ali it Joe Frazier is an yeah. absolute blast to watch and it's why I find myself late at night with a, a whiskey in hand watching Liga Emekis because every game even if I don't know any of the players is full of highlight reel level uh, creative creative attack we're paying you too much if you can afford to drink whiskey late at night. <laughs> well, it's not the expensive stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. But 
you know, as a Brazilian, you know, having watched the best, you know, even before my time, I watched all these games in tapes and stuff. It's just comp when I comp try to compare what I've seen. And we, Andy and I were talking the other day. The amount of incredible players that didn't make the 2002 roster for Brazil for the World Cup, I mean, they would all start today and be difference makers. And th those are the players that, you know, we would watch, I would watch growing up. And nowadays, I just, I just feel like these players are too, too much European from a sense that, you know, they, they've been going to Europe too young and, you know, they don't finish their development in a more creative league with a more creative freedom and, you know, identity of play. And they go at age 18, 19, 20 to Europe and they're not consolidated as a player to go there and already get a Barcelona or Manchester City jersey and, you know, oh, you're the player that we're going to play the ball to, you know. So they get there and they're trying to fight for a spot and they're trying to provide a role for the team and then they miss all that creativity. And there are many examples of these players in the current roster for the Copa America that, you know, when you think about that specific, you know, transition phase that they had to make when they were too, went too young to Europe, it makes sense that now they lost a bit of their creativity. And not just the creativity, but the willingness to take somebody on and to do something different. Uh, can I say, you know, why are you crying? No, seriously? Why are you crying about the current Brazilian? You have no idea what it's like to suffer poor soccer. You know, decades and decades of watching England. You know, heck, you're Brazilian. You can at least go to highlights, you know, going back decades of Brazilians doing credible things. You know, I mean, you're, you're the guy that, you know, is, is complaining about not having, you know, an extra 5%. You know, I haven't even gotten to 5%, <laughs> you know, being English. You understand? I mean, you know, it's, I agree with you that, you know, they're not what they used to be. They're still better than anybody else in the whole world. For those of you that have seen our Twitter and Facebook post with Andy and all the note cards in front, there's a lot of note cards, but they all just say whinge and moan about England losing the Euro and always losing for his entire lifetime since 1966. Every single one says the same thing. Exactly. So, so, so if you've enjoyed this podcast, prepare for another 40 minutes of the same. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, stop your crying and whining. Let's let's let's. You know. So let's dive into that Copa <laughs> final because I, I think I think it really illustrates a really good point. One that we talk about or we want to highlight often, which is the goal that Argentina scored was a moment of brilliance. And if you look at the way that the goal was scored, it was well taken by Di Maria. But the the, the he was in a one v one on the, the on the weak side of the field, the back side of the field, and a fantastic ball was played through him in that one v one situation for him to put it over the keeper's head. But the reason he was in a 1v1, the reason there was not a covering center back is because the center backs were keyed in on Messi. And by having Messi and Di Maria on the pitch at the same time, which Argentina struggled to do, it took them a while before they decided to put them on the field at the same time and give them many minutes, but they always looked the best when both of them were on the field because, because it created space for the other. And that's what makes the old Brazilian teams great 
right? It, it's what frustrates Philippe about the current Brazilian team, and it's what makes Andy incredibly jealous when other nations have creative players on the field, uh, kind of like the United States does, right, as of late. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I would go as far as to say that, you know, Di Maria had, you know, an incredible Copa because Messi was double teamed. So, you know, Di Maria had all sorts of space and time you know, and, and was able to exploit that space and time because, you know, you know, we're all coaches. You know, if we know that there's an absolutely brilliant player on the field, you know, we look for our axe murderer, our best defender, you know, and, you know, we stick him on that player you know, to take that player out of the game. And then we say to the rest of the team, you know, when that player gets the ball, we need to collapse and we need to defend against the dribble. You know, and, you know, while we're collapsing and defending against the dribble, we're giving the other players in the forward line on the other team extra space and time. As, as youth coaches uh, here at our club, Legends, that's our focus is, is, on give, is on having number 10s at every position throughout the entire field, having creative players willing to take players on and go for it at every field. Andy, there's a story that we didn't prep, but you've told many times. It's in your book. It's in Chapter 28 in Training Soccer Legends, but it's actually about my team, the 83-84 Legends, um, when we were at the Blue Chip Showcase. Do you remember the story that I'm referring to, Andy? The French coach. Je ne sais quoi. Oh yeah. Tell yeah, this story because yeah. oh, this is a perfect brilliant. example of of what 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 we try to do with the teams that we create and coach so that they can be more like Argentina in the final and less like Brazil. More more tricks up their sleeve. So th- this is this is going back a long time, you know, Probably you're 2000 I would get. Yeah, you can see that you know Andrew is no spring chicken anymore. So <laughs> so you know we're we're about, you know, 17 years old, you know, we're in our, you know deep into our showcase phase and uh, you know we're, we're playing a team from Michigan. Uh, I forget, but, you know, it was a good team. They were state champs. And uh, and so, um, you know, we start the game off and, you know, the coach has his junkyard dog, his axe murderer. Before that, you go up to to shake his hand and wish him luck. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I go up to wish him luck because I do with, you know, all the opposing coaches, even though I don't really mean it. Um, <laughs> so if you're an opposing coach listening now you know the, the cat is out of the bag uh, you know let's just say I, I hope the luck is even you know and the, <laughs> and the more skillful team wins and and uh, so I go up to shake his hand and you know wish him luck and uh, and he shrugs his shoulders and he says oh, we won't need it you know and, and you know I looked at him you cocky son of a and, and so I walked away and you know, I'm biting my tongue you know, which was rare for me in those days. I was a lot more impulsive when I was younger. And, uh, and so, um, you know, on the first, you know, on the kickoff, first play of the game, uh, you know, in those days you had to pass the ball to the other forward who was yard away. And, and, you know, somebody goes after that player with the ball and, you know, he does a fake, you know, to, to looks like he's going to pass it out to the left wing and, and does a marathon on the turn around the on-rushing forward. You know, and so then he goes into the midfield and he plays a quick wall pass, you know, and, and gets it back again and takes a shot from outside of the box and it skims off of the crossbar. We nearly score. And the other coach whistles to his junkyard dog, you know, and there's this like Neanderthal looking kid. Who's you know, twice as tall as every single one of our players. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, just, you know, literally, you know, you know looks like he's a, he's a you know, a... a you know, just walked out of the the, the uh, you know deepest forests of a- Africa. You know, the, the gorilla type. You know, young man. You know, and he lifts his his head. Up, oh, oh, oh. You know, because <laughs> he whistled for him, right? Yeah, he whistled at him. Yeah, yeah, know, he like whistled at him. Yeah, you know, yeah. and lifts his head up. And 
Mark number nine, you know. And no, so it was number five. It was Jesse Baker. All right, does it yeah, matter? Yeah. The numbers, it does. Yeah, know? yeah. Because Jesse might listen to this. Jesse, we want to give you some props. Your Maradona turn in two thousand in Cincinnati, Ohio, against the team from Michigan was impressive. But you're the frustrated critic. I get a number wrong, and you just you know, pick on every little thing, you know, because. You know, it's so you played on that team. I had seven, eight teams at the time. Oh, you used to tell this story, remembering every single detail, and apparently you've forgotten. Nice oh, number. Okay. Forgive me. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and so, so uh, anyway, you know, and this is kind of interesting because you know the next place somebody else did a move and beat a player, and the next place somebody else did a move and beat a player, and the coach kept whistling, you know, for three different plays to his Neanderthal to go and mark a different player. You know, and the fourth play, another player beat somebody with a with a move, you know, and you know, and the, the player turned to his coach, and he looked at him from the middle of the field after that play was over, and he said, "Which one, coach?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like playing against the 1970 Brazilian team. You, you know, can't you, you can't key on one. Who do you mark? Yeah. You know, and if you key in on Leo Messi, you leave Di Maria free. You know, if you key on Di Maria, you leave Leo Messi free. You know, and you know, and so having one, you know, two, three, the more the better. Deceptive dribblers means that you just can't set up a tactical system, you know, to take away that ability, you know, and their ability to penetrate because they can beat the immediate defender and create numbers even or even numbers up by beating two players on offense, which is a defensive nightmare. You know, numbers down on defense is everything a good coach tries to avoid. Yeah. And, and for us, like within the club, like our structure is, 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 is a giant emphasis on the 1v1. That's all we do um, when they're young so that they can beat players off the, off the dribble. As they get older and the 1v1 skills under pressure is intuitive and coming out of their ears, they don't think about it, they're doing it all the time, then we introduce a 2v2 phase to it, which we'll have a podcast deep, deep diving I, on I've 2v2. I've got to stop you. It's not all we do. We work on shooting as well as 1v1. For sure, yeah, so, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't want people to go away thinking that all we do is you know, one-on-one. Well, one-on-one ends with a shot. But the one v ones ball striking and of course the, ball the greatest passers are always the greatest finishers. Correct. So Correct. by working on finishing, we get the techniques of passing down. Correct. Correct. Yeah. But we go into a two v two phase where a big, a big, a big emphasis for us as coaches is on combination play, working with an opponent to beat beat a defense. Right? Wall passes, give and goes, overlaps, double pass, passes, takeovers, and so a fully matured legends team. When we get the ball in really tight spaces in the attacking third. All of us are prepared to take players on off the dribble or combine with a teammate to break down the defense. And the defense doesn't know what to expect from the person with the ball. And every single person with the ball is creative enough to take players on and willing and, and brave enough to take them on and, and create. Right and, and, yeah. and, and that's an important piece to it. We'll do a 2v2 episode at one point and kind of deep dive that. We've done it on 1v1s. We haven't done it on the 2v2 piece yet. Um, but uh, anyways, yeah, as, 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 as we look back at those tournaments, both the Copa and the Euro, um, it was really fun for me as a as somewhat neutral. I, I claim Switzerland, as I talked about last podcast, but um, it, was, it was fun as a neutral. It's to, all about the money, isn't it? To, 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 <laughs> the whiskey and the money, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, to, to notice the dichotomy between the two tournaments because it, the, 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 the difference in culture and the impact culture has on style was dramatic and um, um, obvious. Um, you couldn't miss it. Yeah, yeah, and you talked about bravery just then, you know. And and one of the things that you know, I go back and I watch every once in a while, just because it was so unbelievable at the time was, 
you know, what Tostow did to Bobby Moore, you know, in the 1970 World Cup when they were playing England, you know, because, you know, he was just outside of the penalty area and Bobby Moore was an unbelievable defender, you know, just, just more than world-class. We chatted you know? about him at length in episode two, the Ashington England episode, which if you haven't listened to, you should. It's our most downloaded episode. Uh, it, and, you know, Tostow nutmegged him. You know, and if you're going up against Bobby Moore, yeah. you don't ever try and nutmeg that somebody that good. You know, you realize you're going up against the best in the world, you know, and, you know, the guy that, you know, masterminded you know, England winning the previous World Cup, you know, and you realize that, hey, maybe I shouldn't try and nutmeg this guy. And you talk about bravery, you know, tossed out, nutmegged him and then set up a goal for, for Jarzinho, you know, after nutmegging him. Which the game was so less global then, and England, to even a greater degree, had this 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 confidence and arrogance about their 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 ability with the game. They just come off winning the nineteen sixty six six World Cup. I can't imagine what it was like for drinking English that whiskey, fans, mate. English fans, to see it. Right? Like, I, I mean, I, I'm sure jaws were on the floor when Bobby Moore is, is nutmegged. Yeah, do you hear what I said? You've got to stop drinking that whiskey. You're st- stuttering and stammering there. And, you know, it's, it, it, says, it says Coca-Cola Classic on it, but it's actually whiskey. <laughs> and a point. There's a point there. <laughs> <laughs> Who's driving me home? <laughs> I'll order the Uber. Uh, what was your question? Uh, I, just how, I mean, when, when Moore was nutmegged at the World Cup, at, you know, in a less global game, the English probably expect it now when they play Brazilians. I'm sure well, Jaws expect were at the it floor. Now. They would expect it in, in 2002. But now when you play against the Brazilians, you know, you don't expect it. Maybe Neymar. Yeah. You know, but, you know, things have changed. Well, what do you think? No, uh, back to what I was saying. I feel like, and I actually did some research on that. Um, the Brazilian players have been going to Europe way, way, way too young. Um, before they finalize the last step of development. Um, I was looking at the stats, and out of the 21 field players on the Copa America, only three of them did not get transferred to European clubs before the age of 21. And that's, I mean, that's unbelievably young. Um, And out of these three players, those are three players that some of them are still in Brazil, and, you know, they didn't stand out at a young age. They are... You know, players that have been standing out in the Brazilian league in the last, you know, couple of years at a more mature age. Um, and, you know, injuries and all that kind of stuff, you know, gave them space. But mo- besides them, you know, all the young talents that we have at 18, 19, 20, boom, they're gone. And the one exception, uh, even though he was transferred at 21, uh, is Neymar. And why? Because at 17 years old, he was already starting for Santos, and he was already a super impactful player. And he played in the Brazilian league for four years and a half. By the time he left Barcelona, he won a Libertadores with Santos. You know, he won a number of state cups there. Had a ton of success in Santos. He won the Confederations Cup with the Brazilian national team. He was already our number 10 in the national team, you know, even though he was still playing in Brazil. He had a total of 177 games in that period where the players, you know, that follow him uh, on that list, they had around 80, 70, 60. So it's not not enough games and time in the Brazilian league to finish their development. And as I said, when Neymar got transferred to Barcelona, he was already a star. So he got there to join 
Messi and Suarez and be the three players that the Barcelona team would play to. So it's a different scenario. And he already had that confidence and that maturity because he was already the number 10 of the Brazilian national team. So 100%. he didn't lo lose that creativity and their willingness to do things his way. And even though he was playing, in theory, under Messi's shadow, he would still get the ball and rainbow people, nutmeg people, and do crazy stuff with the ball, you know, being at Barcelona, because he had that foundation and he got there with that, you know, confidence from the coaching staff and from the club and from the fans, you know, which allowed him to not lose what the other players lost. And a big example of that for me is Gabriel Jesus. Because when he first played for Brazil in 2016 in the World Cup, uh, sorry, in the qualifying for the World Cup, first game, two goals. And he ended up in that qualifying uh, for the World Cup being the top scorer of the whole qualifying with seven goals in 10 games. Really impressive for a kid that was 18, 19 years old in that period. And then right after that, we have the World Cup. Z that's when he transferred to uh, Man City, zero goals. And then the year after, you know, we played some silly scrimmages against, you know, Qatar, Honduras, and, and teams like that, where he scored a couple goals. He had a total of six goals in, in that whole year and a half. He got two goals in the following Copa America as well. And then since July of 2019, so two years, he hasn't scored a single goal for the Brazilian national team. And the craziest thing for me is that up until he got that red card in the semi, the quarterfinal, he always started. Now, you tell me 10 years ago that uh, number nine that hasn't scored a goal for the Brazilian national team for two years will keep starting. I mean, that's just mind-blowing to me. Yeah. You know? so, so, you know, let's, let's, let's draw a different scenario. So, Neymar, let's, let's you know, hypothesize that instead of joining Barcelona when he left Brazil, that... Neymar, you know, went to play in the EPL, and let's hypothesize that Gareth Southgate <laughs> was coaching Manchester United at the time, and Neymar went to play for Manchester United, you know, and Gareth Southgate would have him playing one and two touch soccer, wouldn't he? Uh, he, he yeah. wouldn't have him playing because he didn't have enough moxie. Well, yeah, you know, he'd, he'd have him sit in the bench and go in, in at 65th minute like Jack Grealish yep. if yeah, they yeah. were a goal down. If they were you a know, goal down. Yeah, or, yeah. or, or tied mm -hmm. because they needed a goal. You know, so Neymar would have gone the same way. Or as in the 119th minute, if he wanted him to take a PK in the 120. <laughs> 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 he would. He would have gone the same way though as as Gabriel Jesus. Fair. You know, because you know he he could have gone and played for an English coach like you know like Sam Allardyce, for example. You know, and and you know and and maybe. You know, Sam Allardyce would have put him as defender and told him to lump the ball 60 yards up the field. Because <laughs> there's a taller guy we've got up there to get on the end of it. <laughs> yeah, because Andy Carroll is up on the forward line yeah, or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. and, and so, you know, there's a lot of things tied into this. But I mean, the conservative structure within the European game is, is, is the point that you're making, Philippe, is that the game in, in Europe is entirely too structured and conservative by nature. And so when the, the Brazilian players that have... You know, gobs and gobs and gobs and gobs of creativity, which they all do playing growing up in Brazil. They have it from playing whatever games they played in the Brazilian league that has not nearly as much structure and encourages creative, go for it, risk taking play. When they go to Europe too early, then then they're not they're not set 
in their ways enough, or they're not a big enough star where the European structure allows them to continue to be creative. Because to be fair, you know, Barcelona has allowed Messi to continue to be, or to be creative. Uh, uh, Ronaldo has been able to be creative in Europe, right? The old Ronaldo, the better Ronaldo who's, was creative in Europe, right? But that's because they were the star when they were there. If they come in as an 18, 19 year old snotty nosed kid that hasn't yet made it, We've got to put him in his place. And, it, and if you look at the older Brazilians that went to Europe, even the ones, well, most of them, most of the good players would go to Europe a little later, back in the 90s and early 2000s. But those that were like phenoms, like the, the phenom, Ronaldo and Rivaldo, Ronaldinho, they went early, but it's also where they go in Europe. So Romario and Ronaldo, they went to PSV Eindhoven which the Dutch league is uh, not as... Not as structured or conservative. Exactly. Yeah. And you get uh, Ronaldinho, who went to the French league, which at P PSU wasn't even that big of a club how it is now. And they had so much success already in national team and in the Brazilian league level. And they had that preparation time until Ronaldo went to... Inter Milan, until Rivaldo went to Barcelona, until Romario went to Barcelona, and when Ronaldinho went to Barcelona. So even when they would go to Europe at that time, even though it, it was early, and in those four cases they are the exception of the exception, they had a transition period there. Does that make sense? And then nowadays you get... Can, you I, can I draw an analogy? You hold on to that thought. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, these players went to Holland, mm -hmm. you know, to, to play in the Dutch league, you know, and it just struck me that, that, you know, anybody that's familiar with Amsterdam, it's like a night out in Amsterdam, you know, involves, you know, uh, you know drugs illegal. I'm not familiar. <laughs> I've never I, been either, so. Yeah, I've been. Heard um, stories, though. But I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I, I saw this from a distance, you know, the red light district, you know, the night out in Amsterdam is anything goes, you know. How far of a distance the, from the red the, light district the, as, a, as a kid was the, it? The soccer, <laughs> let's not go there. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the soccer is similar to a night out in Amsterdam, you know, it's you know, in anything goes. You know, you, you night out in London, you know, last orders, 10.30 a night, yeah, you know, yeah. when I was growing up. You yeah, know, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, just a whole different beast. It's so conservative, you know, you know, it, the two cultures are worlds apart, even though they're only separated by, you know, the south end of the North Sea. You know, it's, uh, it, it's just a different beast. Anyway, you know. It, no, and, and just to, to finalize that thought, like nowadays you got cases like Jesus and Vinicius Jr. who was sold to Real Madrid at 16, and then he had to wait until he was 18 to be able to transfer over, you know. And when he was told he hasn't even played a single professional game, you know. It's just it's just crazy to me. And he these guys go to Europe and they have to prove themselves because they haven't even proved themselves in the Brazilian league. Like Vinicius Juniors were starting to get some minutes at the start in Flamengo when he went to Real Madrid. So and then he started in the Real Madrid B. Like it, it, it the way it happens today is too fast and they don't finalize the last stage of their development in the adult game. They don't cement the creativity. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I, I came across this while I was, uh, you know, I was uh, studying for this episode uh, and, uh, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it. I know I'm going to butcher it. Uh, it's os ingleses o inventarum os brasileiros o 
Apophysioarum. Soarum. That's a six out of ten based on my Portuguese. Yeah, I think I very think generous. Pretty good. I, I think, think I think that's good. very generous. You know, I'm thinking more of a, a minus six out of ten. Um, can you translate this, please? Uh, that means the British um, invented it. The Brazilians perfected it. And and there's no doubt that that is an ultimate truth of the game. The problem is the Brazilians perfected it and they've forgotten how to play the game they perfected because too much data, too much science has crept into the game. And, you know, like Dunga did when he changed the DNA of the Brazilian team in the 90s, um, you know, and, and, you know, later on as the coach, um, you know, he played a very you know brutal game, actually. He was tough, you know, he fouled a lot, you know, and he, you know, took a yellow card on a regular basis during games, you know, and, uh, you know, his approach to the game was very um, British, I hate to say it, but, you know, very British. You know, you know, let's let's eke out a one zero win. And, you know, and what's happened is, uh, you know, Brazil perfected the game and then they forgot. You know, they moved on and they tried to emulate the science of Europe where the money is. And that and that's happening 100 percent because once we lost the World Cup in 2006, where we had. As long as um, in the same line of 70, 2002. 82 the 2016 was unbelievable from the keeper to the striker you know we had what we call the magical square which was ronaldo adriano ronaldinho and kaka where neither of these four defended and one of our center mids was zé roberto who was a left-footed incredibly skillful player and we had cafu and roberto carlos who were older at that time but still super incredibly good players and we had Robinho on the bench, for example, which a lot of people would say, throw him into the mix too. Put five guys that don't defend. We'll, we'll figure it out. Um, but once we lost that World Cup, and we didn't lose it because we weren't good enough or anything, that whole preparation for the World Cup, Brazil kind of went there thinking it was already won because the team was fantastic. And the previous years, you know, Confederations Cup, Copa America, we beat Argentina with our C team in that Copa America. Confederations Cup, we beat Argentina in the final 4-1. You know, we were just unbelievable. And then Brazil decided to change because they thought it was all wrong. Everything was wrong. And then they brought Dunga as a coach. Brazil didn't change because they thought it was all wrong. Brazil changed because of money, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, this is, this is what happened. The, the money game went to Europe, you know, back in the, you know, the sixties, the seventies, there was similar money in Brazil to Europe. There was no benefit to go into Europe. And, and then the, the, the money in Europe just started to skyrocket. You know, the EPL these days is the richest league in the world, you know, because it's the English league and, and, you know, most people around the world speak English as a second language. And, you know, so they, they get it, you know, when, when, you know, English is used to, to commentate on games. And then agents, agents came into the Brazilian game and they started to leverage the talent that was in Brazil. And, you know, in order to get their payday, you know, they started selling 16-year-olds into, into Europe. You know, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, Vinicius Junior, you know, players like that. You know, and these, they hadn't finished their apprenticeship in Brazil. You know, and they certainly hadn't capitalized on their apprenticeship by playing for a, a Santos, you know, a, one of the top clubs in Brazil, you know, like Neymar did, like Pelé did. And, and so, 
you know, this is a real problem, is money makes people get greedy and they take the instant payday instead of maturing the player so the player can do, you know, at age 27, you know, what players like Pelé did in the 1970 World Cup. And in the Neymar's case, uh, he had offers from Real Madrid at 14 years old, Chelsea at 16, Barcelona. I mean, literally, the, out of the top 12 teams in Europe, everybody was like going at him he, since age 14. And his dad always had in his mind, he needs to stay here. And Santos Wise made man. a whole like economical movement to keep him. So they partnered with like different agencies to sponsor and to cover salary and sold part of his rights to another so they would be able to afford him so we could keep them. Well, it got to a point that it was impossible. And, and when he thought he was ready to go, and I think his timing was actually good, then he went. And he went, as we talked previously, as a consolidated player. And that's why he has had had success in his career, even though hasn't won a World Cup for us yet. I really hope he does. Andy, you mentioned Dunga before. And Dunga's, for those of you guys that don't know, Dunga is uh, Philippe's favorite Brazilian player of all time. <laughs> um, but you mentioned Dunga before. And, and um, I read a book recently. I think I tweeted about it on the uh, Coaching Inside the Box account. Um, uh, but it's what happened to the USMNT, US Men's National Team, the ugly truth about the beautiful game. And it's written by a Columbia um, professor, um, uh, and not a soccer insider. And he conducted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews um, of opponents, opponents, uh, opponent coaches um, of the US Men's National Team over the last 30 and 40 years, and, and really kind of did a deep dive on our culture as a, 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 from a United States perspective related to the game. And in some respects, it stayed at the professional level, but it even eked into development of younger players. Um, and at the very end, there's a chapter, a fantastic chapter. In fact, I screen, I literally took a picture with my phone and sent it to Andy and Philippe, I think like 10 pages. Like you have to read these 10 pages. There's so many great stuff. In, and it was, it was the chapter was making a US MNT, basically US MNT player. What, what we've seen um, based on the last 40 years in the United States state soccer, what we've seen in the rest of the world, this is what we need to, need to do to really create a player. And in this, they talk about Brazil, specifically talking about culture and how much of an impact culture has on the player, right? Something that we talk about often, not earth-shattering by any stretch, but something that I didn't realize, and maybe Philippe already did, but culturally, throughout Brazil, it's a giant country. It's very different. And Neymar grew up in um, in, in Sao Paulo, right, in, in the southern side of Sao Paulo, which is has a more free-flow um, culture, uh, which reflects their style of play, more similar to Rio de Janeiro, according to, to this book, um, and whereas Dunga grew up in Rio Grande do Sul. Um, which is in the south, colonized by Italians and Germans. Yes, yeah. So German and Lithuanian immigrants is what he said. And so specifically, the style of play is more of an Argentinian or Uruguayan style, tough and without restraint. Um, and, 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 and I found that to be really interesting. And, and so reflecting from a soccer coach perspective as a youth coach, right? Like as I have training um, tonight with my 2013 and 2012 teams, when I go to that training 
training session, am I creating a culture that creates or, or gives the platform for kids to play creative, go for it, tough, you know, really exciting um, uh, style of play full of bravery and, and creativity? Or am I creating a style or a culture that's more built around conservative, I don't want to mess things up? So, and, so what's the comparison in America to what you just named about, uh, about Brazil? There um, is none. Well, there is actually. You know, it's at a much different level, but, uh, you know, who do we think of as one of the greatest players ever to put on an American shirt? What springs to mind? Somebody that scored goals, you know, had you know, not, not Brazilian skill on the ball, but... I mean, uh, from the men's side, I certainly would say Clinton Dempsey. Right, uh, right. On the so women's side, from? I'd say Mia Hamm. Uh, Nacogdoches, Texas. Right, right. Which was... Uh, heavily Latin-based immigrant area, and that's where he learned to play the game, was in the, the uh, uh, adult leagues with, with uh, Hispanic immigrants. Bingo. And, and yep. you know, Now name a couple of uh, famous U.S. players but didn't have that type of creativity on the ball that were from a whole different culture. Uh, Michael Bradley. Uh, going back a bit. Uh, okay. Uh, so we're going 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, John Harks. John Harks, absolutely. Yeah, That's yeah. one of the two I was thinking. Yeah. And his buddy. Uh, buddy, definitely not Eric Winalda. Oh, he's got a kid that's doing great right now in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Reina. Reina. Claudio Reina. Claudio yeah. Reina. Where'd yeah. they come from? Uh, New Jersey. New Jersey. Yeah. And what? A ton of him. Yes. In fact, okay, he does. It was talk. a European immigrant. It was a European immigrant okay. uh, in so, society. Yeah. So the, the more creative player, uh, you know, in the US came out of Nacogdoches. Yeah. You know, the, the great players, don't get me wrong, you know, they do really well. And it's the best time in US national team history in terms of international success. You know, so, you know, Rainer and Harks, a lot of respect for them. But they didn't play the same way as Dempsey. Sure. Because they were brought up in more of a European traditional soccer community. It was a, it was a, it was a Scottish, Italian uh, immigrant, Irish immigrant, uh, Carney, New Jersey. Yes, there's yeah, a yeah, yeah. great documentary about it on YouTube, by the way, if you haven't looked it up. But actually, let me point out another thing. The book oftentimes talks about Tab Ramos. And Tab Ramos being, and, 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 and all of his teammates talking about how deceptive and creative he was on the ball. But Tab Ramos grew up, moved to the United States at, I think, 11 or 12 from South America, Uruguay. Right, right. Yeah, so he had a yeah. different grand. In. He had a different way yep. of growing up with the ball and seeing the ball differently. He had a love affair with the ball. And was so much better than the rest of his peers at every level when he got to the United States that it allowed him to be creative and everybody else lived to serve him. Right. So uh, I grew up in post-1966 England and, uh, you know, the director of coaching was a guy called Charles Hughes for the, for the FA, the Football Association, you know, and he was famous for uh, proposing that the best way to play the game was by sticking the ball 60 yards up the field long ball, you know, aiming for somebody that was good in the air and then trying to get the, you know, the, the scraps off of that table, the knockdowns, you know, and, you know, playing a direct method. And he was famous for it. You know, this isn't like, you know, it was a secret, you know. And so the coaching schools at the day were dictated to by Charles Hughes. And that was what the coaching schools taught. So, so Peter Crouch was 40 years too late. <laughs> In Brazil, we actually have think, a word to I think to Peter make. Crouch was his illegitimate son. <laughs> In Brazil, we actually have a, a term to kind of characterize and make fun of the style of play that England... Stick it in the mixer. It's called... It says chuveirinho, which means shower, because... It's always the ball it's just dropping, dropping in. in the box. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and it's, it's just a classic because, uh, and, and I'm going to diss myself here. I came to Kansas City and, uh, you know, and, and instantly I was, you know, good enough to play on the top team in Kansas City. But that's not saying a lot back in those days. This was the middle 80s. You know, and... Uh, you say middle ages? <laughs> 
middle a good eighties. One. Oh, sorry, forgive yeah. me. Forgive I might look like I came out of the middle ages, but you know, thanks, Andrew. Um, you know, and and uh, uh, we went to uh, Pikes Peak, not Pikes Peak. We went to uh, Vail, Colorado, which is at nine thousand feet to play in this tournament, and. Um, you know, and, and I was in that that mode, and uh, and I was playing with a, a guy that played professional soccer, Bobby Bazzada, and, and finished his career with the Kansas City Comets, and he was a great technical, skillful midfielder. And you know, I was a British left fullback, and a lot of times I would just stick it sixty yards down the the field. And you know, bear in mind, I'd never played at nine thousand feet before. And so, you know, um, I was marking a guy called Emilio Romero, who was a professional player and played for the you know played professionally in Colorado, in Denver. And uh, I remember making one forward run early in the game, you know, and, and it just exhausted me because it was at 9,000 feet. And I was like, you know, I'm not doing that again, you know. And so, you know, every time I got the ball, you know, I, I stuck it 60 yards up to our center striker, who's Hugh Williams, who's now coaching the, the women's professional team here in Kansas City, yeah. you know, because Hugh was fast as a speeding bullet, you know, and we could count on him to break away and get a goal. And, uh, and at halftime, you know, we get together and, uh, you know, and at halftime, you know, Bobby looks at me and he said, you know, Andy, I've got one question for you. Is there any chance sometime this game that you're actually going to pass the ball to my feet? Because <laughs> he was the central midfielder. And, and, uh, and I looked at him and I realized that not once in the first half had I passed the ball to Bobby's feet. You know, and I'm like, I looked at him and I said, Sorry, Bob, that's the way we do it in England. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy had his neck hurting because just looking at the ball going over his head. Oh, yeah, it's like watching the planes go over. <laughs> <laughs> But he was well rested for the second half. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, man, we are on a roll today. Guys, there is so much. We are having so much fun talking Soccer, talking the summer of football, the Euros, the Copa America, the wonderful CONCACAF Nations League, and soon to be hopefully another trophy for the United States in this illustrious, prestigious Gold Cup. We've got to turn this episode into two parts. What about the Olympics? Oh, yeah, the Olympics. Uh, sorry, the game was so tough. Maybe not. But we are just finishing up part one. Stay tuned. We'll be dropping part two soon. <laughs>